Welcome to Hub History, the award-winning podcast that goes far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 207, Launching the USS Constitution. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm talking about the most famous ship in Boston history, and perhaps in the entire history of the U.S. Navy. When the Navy was reborn in 1794, the Constitution was among the first fleet of frigates that made up its backbone. A decade later, the USS Constitution would earn a brilliant, nearly flawless record of naval combat against the British in the War of 1812. And today it stands as the oldest commissioned warship afloat in the world, and the last American ship to sink an enemy in a ship-to-ship duel. However, the Constitution's origins were far from flawless. It was part of a procurement program that was nearly cancelled, and the famous frigate was almost scrapped before it was even completed. After it was rescued and finished, the USS Constitution took not one, not two, but three attempts to successfully launch. But before we talk about the three launches of the USS Constitution, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is The Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys by Doris Kearns Goodwin. I selected this book this week because it seemed to fit with the theme of the episode. Before their families merged and became a political dynasty, the Kennedys and the Fitzgeralds were North Enders. And since much of the drama in our main story takes place in Edmund Hart's North End shipyard, it only made sense to find a book that would also highlight North End stories. We recently added a copy of the Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys to our Hub History Library, after it was recommended to co-host Emerita Nicky for its descriptions of life in the North End and the role that St. Stephen's and other churches played as a quiet refuge in the storm of tenement life. Here's how the publisher describes the book. In its drama and scope, Doris Kearns Goodwin's The Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys is one of the richest works of biography in the last decade that decade being mostly the 80s, as the book was published in 1991. From the wintry day in 1863 when John Francis Fitzgerald was baptized, through the memorable moment 98 years later when his grandson and namesake John Fitzgerald Kennedy was inaugurated as President of the United States, the author brings us every colorful inch of this unique American tapestry. Each character emerges unmistakably, with the clarity and complexity of personal recollection. Honey Fitz Fitzgerald, the mayor of Boston and founder of his dynasty. His independent and shrewdly political daughter, Rose, and her husband, the cunning, manipulative Joseph P. Kennedy. Finally, the golden trio of Kennedy children, Joe Jr., Kathleen, and Jack, whose promise was eclipsed by the greater power of fate. With unprecedented access to the Kennedy family and to decades of private papers, Doris Kearns Goodwin has crafted a singular work of American history. It is at once the story of an era, of the immigrant experience, and, most of all, of two families whose ambitions propelled them to unrivaled power, and whose passions nearly destroyed them. And for my upcoming event this week, I'm highlighting a virtual event from the Boston Athenaeum, I of the Expert, Views of Boston. The online description of this event really spoke to me, especially after last week's travel-inspired episode that took us from Boston to California. Miss traveling? Yes, I definitely do. Join 
Tour Guides, Assistant Curator Christina Michelon, Rare Materials Catalog Librarian Graham Skinner, and Director of Education Hannah Weissman for an evening of armchair travel through our own extraordinary city, focused on the work of three 20th century artists. Michelon will explore how historic architecture was perceived in the 1930s, as well as today, by examining Berenice Abbott's sharply focused and high-contrast views of Boston's built environment. Shifting from a documentarian to tourist perspective, Skinner will take us to some of Boston's iconic destinations depicted in poet, travel writer, and artist Chang Yi's original illustrations for his 1959 book, The Silent Traveler in Boston. And Weissman will lead us into the South End to experience the neighborhood as painter and illustrator Alan Rohan Kreit knew it in 1977, when he created an artist sketchbook of the South End during his residency at the Museum of African American History. The virtual tour is free to the public, and registration is required. It'll be held on Wednesday, October 21st from 6 to 7 p.m. Real-time captions for the event can be requested. And if you're not tuning in soon enough to make an October 21st talk, we have a bonus event that'll give you a little more lead time. On October 27th, Marta Crilly of the Boston City Archives will be giving a talk for the Boston Public Library about using the archives to research local and family history in Boston. Here's how the BPL describes the event. Are you a local historian? Neighborhood history enthusiast? Genealogist? Boston City Archives holds millions of public records, spanning over 300 years of city government, and documenting Boston's residents, schools, parks, buildings, and governance. Archivist Marta Crilly will give an overview of the records available to researchers and offer tips on how to navigate the archives' vast collections. Marta's been a great help to me personally in researching local history, tracking down city documents that were pivotal in writing our episodes about perambulating Boston's bounds and resisting the KKK in Boston. So I can vouch that she knows what she's talking about. Just go to this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 207 to find the links you need to register for either event, as well as a link to buy The Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Before I move on with the show, I just want to pause and thank our Patreon sponsors. I have to admit, I've been really feeling lately how much work it takes to put this show together. This week, for example, I wrote a script of a little over 15 pages. If I had to guess, that means I'll end up recording for about two hours, then I'll spend four to six hours editing that recording to produce a final product of about 45 minutes, or maybe an hour. That all adds up to a significant investment of my time, but along with time, it also takes money to create a podcast. We spend money on web hosting and security, podcast media hosting, audio processing services, transcription, storage and backup, and sometimes hardware upgrades, like a new microphone. Your support of Hub History means that we can continue creating the show. If you'd like to become a sponsor, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. Now it's time for this week's main topic. It all started so optimistically. 
a single paragraph inserted on the second page of the September 15, 1797 edition of the Gazette of the United States, carried a dateline from the Boston Navy Yard a few days before, and said, The constructor has the honor to inform his fellow citizens that the frigate Constitution is to be launched into her destined element on Wednesday the 20th instant at 11 o'clock. The Gazette of the United States was basically a mouthpiece of the Federalist Party. It had been set up and secretly supported by Alexander Hamilton when it originally started publishing in New York City. After a deal hatched in the room where it happens moved the seat of government to Philadelphia, the Gazette moved along with it, and continued to pick fights with Republican papers that also covered the federal government. That a Philadelphia paper that was mostly concerned with Federalist politics reprinted this brief notice from the Boston Papers shows how far and wide interest in the new frigate was spread. A few days after that first notice, the same paper carried a second, longer letter from the same source, dated September 18th. This one included specific instructions and warnings for anyone who planned to attend the launch of the new frigate. The constructor, having extended to his fellow citizens all reasonable gratification of their laudable curiosity during the progress of the building, believes he may with propriety make the following requests and suggestions on the operation of launching the frigate constitution. That, accepting the President of the United States, the Governor, Lieutenant Governor, and their respective suites, and others specially admitted, who will comparatively be very few, no person will attempt in any way to pass into the limits of the Navy Yard. The reason of this request is obviously to prevent interruption or confusion, which might be injurious or ruinous to the act of launching. Oh, in hindsight, what a relief it would have been if some interruption from the crowd would have been all that happened that proved ruinous to the launch. The author continues, It will be critical, under the most favorable circumstances, and indispensably requiring perfect silence and obedience to orders. Independent of this conclusive reason, the danger of encroaching spectators would be imminent from the occasional and abrupt falling of bodies used in the construction of the ship. A conformity, therefore, to this request is earnestly solicited. It is suggested, as the tide will be full, and it would be necessary for the safety of the spectators, particularly women and children, that they do not approach in crowds too near the margin of the contiguous wharves, as the sudden entrance of so large a body as the frigate will occasion an instantaneous swell of the water, the height of which cannot easily be calculated, and against which, therefore, the discretion of the people ought amply to guard. It is regretted, in this instance, that the yard and the places around it are too contracted for an occasion which will probably excite so much desire, and in which all the citizens have so much interest. It is therefore submitted to those who can make the arrangement to place themselves in vessels or watercrafts at due distance upon the profile or the side of the frigate, but by no means too near, either in a right line or otherwise, as the direction may be uncertain nor to load open boats too deeply as the agitation of the water, even at a considerable distance, may be somewhat hazardous. It is also recommended to those who erect stages to accommodate spectators that they have them secured in every respect, as the loss of life of a single citizen would mar the satisfaction and pleasure that the constructor otherwise would enjoy of the building and conducting into the ocean a powerful agent of national justice, which hope dictates may become the just pride and ornament of the American name. This letter, like the first one, was signed by George Claghorn, 
the naval constructor tasked with building the frigate Constitution. Constructor was a relatively new role that arose in the late 18th century, combining the expertise of the master shipwright with the academic training of naval architects. Claghorn seemed well-suited for the role. Born on Martha's Vineyard in 1748, he started working as a shipwright in New Bedford sometime between 1767 and 1774, when he opened his own shipyard. A 1931 biographical sketch of Claghorn by William Emery, written during the Constitution's most complete overhaul and restoration, summarizes Claghorn's most impressive launches during his New Bedford days. One of his most famous achievements was the ship Rebecca, said to have been the first American whaler to double Cape Horn and secure a cargo of oil in the Pacific Ocean. The Rebecca slid off the ways in March 1785. Although of only 175 tons, she was considered a mammoth vessel for the times, and people from all the towns as far away as Taunton and Bridgewater visited as an object of wonder. Another important piece of construction was an even larger ship, the Barclay, launched in October 1793. New Bedford's first newspaper, the Medley, in its weekly edition of October 18, 1893, announced the impending event as follows. Tomorrow morning, between the hours of 7 and 8, the new and beautiful ship Barclay, burdened 270 tons, will be launched from the shipyard of Colonel George Claghorn. The satisfaction of viewing this token of our increasing commerce will, we doubt not, induce many to watch the first beams of the rising sun. The succeeding issue of the medley stated that a large crowd watched the gala spectacle. As the ship successfully took the water, there were, quote, repeated huzzas and 15 discharges of cannon. Claghorn, by this time, had fully established his reputation as a skillful builder of large vessels. Claghorn might have made his name as a builder of large vessels with ships of 175 and 270 tons, but the Constitution would dwarf them both at 1,576 tons just four years later. Though the position of naval constructor has been filled by line officers, usually captains or admirals, since 1940, it was a civilian job through the 1860s. George Claghorn had served as a militia captain during the Revolution, and he'd be appointed as a colonel of the New Bedford Militia sometime after that town split off from Dartmouth in 1787. However, at the time of his appointment as constructor, he was a civilian shipwright. The highest-ranking military officer involved in building the Constitution was Captain Sam Nicholson. Nicholson had been a lieutenant and then a captain in the Continental Navy during the Revolutionary War, with successful cruises in the Irish Sea and the Caribbean. After a period of retirement after the war, he was once again given a captain's commission in 1794, and he was ordered to serve as the naval inspector overseeing the construction of the Constitution, with the understanding that he'd be the ship's first commander upon completion. By the spring of 1798, that completion was on the horizon, so Nicholson ran an ad on May 12th to recruit seamen for the new frigate. Notice is hereby given that a house of rendezvous is opened at the sign of the Federal Eagle, kept by Mrs. Broaders in 4th Street, where 150 able seamen and 95 ordinary seamen will have an opportunity of entering into the service of their country for one year, unless sooner discharged by the President. 
To all able seamen, the sum of $17, and to all ordinary seamen, the sum of $10 per month, will be given, and two months' advance pay will be paid by the recruiting officer if necessary. None will be allowed to enter this honorable service, but such as are well-organized, healthy and robust, and free from scorbutic and consumptive affectations. A glorious opportunity now presents to the brave and hardy seamen of New England to enter the service of their country, to avenge its wrongs, and to protect its rights on the ocean. Those brave lads are now invited to repair to the flag of the Constitution, now flying at the above rendezvous, where they shall be kindly received, handsomely entertained, and may enter into immediate pay. Signed, Samuel Nicholson, Commander, United States Frigate Constitution. P.S. At the above rendezvous, Lieutenant Clark of the Marines will enlist three sergeants, three corporals, one armorer, one drummer, one fifer, and fifty privates to compose a company of the ship constitution. None can be enlisted who are not five feet six inches high. With the crew recruited and the ship's hull complete by September, it was time to plan a launch. You may be imagining water flooding into a dry dock to float the ship. But dry docks didn't exist in the United States until the 1830s, when Dry Dock 1 was built at the Charlestown Navy Yard to service the frigate Constitution. In order to build this massive vessel, Colonel Claghorn first had to construct a slipway, which was essentially a large, sturdy scaffold, elevated high enough above the waterline to provide a stable platform for constructing the ship while still allowing it to slide down the ways into the water when the time came to launch. The location selected for its construction was Edmund Hart's shipyard in the North End. It occupied roughly the same footprint as today's Coast Guard base, and after a wharf was built over the site of the yard in the 1820s, it retained the name Constitution Wharf through the 1940s. A 2014 blog post by Matthew Brinkle for the Constitution Museum does a good job describing how the slipway was built at Hart's yard. Joseph Green delivered 76 tons of stone to elongate the wharf, and Samuel Green and James Finno brought 145 tons of stone to make secure footings for the launching ways. Over this firm footing, shipyard workers began to construct the groundways. They laid the first layer, probably composed of oak beams, flush with the surface of the slip and secured them with stakes. After filling the gaps with packed earth, the workers began to stack squared pine timbers, alternately lengthwise and crosswise. Claghorn believed that the optimal angle for the launching ways would be provided by a declivity of five-eighths of an inch to the foot. Because the keel was about 145 feet long, the ways had to be stacked more than seven and a half feet tall at the bow. Once the pine timbers had been carefully leveled, workers fastened two rows of oak sliding planks on both sides. These formed the ramp down which the ship would slide. To keep the ship from slipping off during launch, parallel ribbons, or stops, were fastened to the outside edge of the sliding planks. Next, workers placed splitting blocks the length of the ways, making sure to observe the same declivity. The keel would be laid on these blocks. Made of clear-grained pine, the blocks could be split and removed from under the keel when it was time to launch the vessel. As the ship took form, shipwrights erected a series of shores and braces to prevent it from toppling over. By June 1797, the bottom of the ship had been fully planked and squared off. In July, workers began nailing the copper sheathing to the bottom, 
and by August, the ship was nearly ready for launching. Shipwrights now constructed a launching cradle that would move the ship into the water. The cradle functioned like a giant sled. Two long skids, or bilgeways, were laid on top of the sliding planks parallel with the keel. From those bilgeways rose a series of planks and uprights called poppets that formed a structure not unlike a modern boat trailer. Once the keel blocks were split away, the full, immense weight of the ship rested on the cradle. On September 20th, a huge crowd gathered in Boston to watch the launch. The keel blocks were split, the ship settled onto the launching cradle, and the whole rig began to move, ever so slowly, down the sliding planks. And then, disappointment. Salem minister William Bentley noted in his diary that on the 19th, he went in company with Captain Jabot's friends in Newhall stage and reached Boston at 11 to see the launch of the frigate Constitution. And then on the 20th, he described the enormous crowd that turned out to launch the frigate. The concourse was great, and nearly 200 boats and vessels of all sizes were anchored in the river. The shores of Charlestown and of Noddles Island were covered, as were the tops of all the houses. No damage was done, excepting some of the small craft went foul of each other, but without great injury. Reverend Bentley was on board one of the many vessels that anchored in the river. Unfortunately, he noted, the launch didn't proceed as planned. Laid off in the Portland packet, but we were disappointed. No means could succeed, and the frigate moved only 19 feet. An anonymous Bostonian kept a diary among the pages of Isaiah Thomas's 1797 New England Almanac that's now in the collection of the USS Constitution Museum. Though the identity of the writer isn't known, he witnessed all three attempts to launch the Constitution. On September 20th, his account starts out just as optimistically as George Claghorn's public invitations had. The day so anxiously anticipated has arrived. The weather is fine. The flags and pennants displayed announced the launching of the frigate Constitution. The Navy Yard is honored by a visit of the President of the United States, the Governor, and a vast concourse of spectators, a most brilliant collection of ladies. Everything promises fair and induces us to wish that fair may befall their hope. But alas, how futile are the anticipations of mortals. The Constitution, after moving slowly about 20 feet, remained immovably fixed nor could all the force of levers, screws, and tackles, with a numerous and active gang of workmen, alter her situation. You might think that after such a spectacular failure to launch, everything involving the Constitution would be canceled or put on hold. You'd be wrong, though. William Emery's 1931 profile of Claghorn notes that at least one Boston theater saw no reason to cancel its planned festivities. Indicative of the great popular interest was the plan of the Haymarket Theater to portray the launching on the stage on the night of September 20th. And despite the mishap at the Navy Yard, the program was given as advertised. A musical piece called The Launch, or Huzzah for the Constitution, was produced with great success. A few days later, Colonel Claghorn wrote to the Secretary of the Navy to explain just what had happened during the launch. Sir, having before stated to you my intention of launching the frigate Constitution on the 20th instant, the necessary preparations were made to that end, 
and at the appointed time all the blocks and shores were removed, with the full expectation of her moving gently into the water. She, however, did not start until the screws and other machinery had been applied, and then she moved only about 27 feet. Concluding that some hidden cause had impeded her progress, and the tide ebbing fast, I decided it to be most prudent to block and shore her up and examine carefully into the cause of her stopping. I found that the part of the waves which had not before received any of the weight had settled about half an inch, which, added to some other cause of no great importance in itself, had occasioned the obstruction. That other cause of no great importance is rumored to have been a fist-sized stone that got onto one of the sliding planks. The impediment added to the settling of the ways left the giant ship stuck fast. Claghorn's letter goes on to describe how his crew spent the next day readying the ship for another attempted launch. The next day, after due preparation, the ship was raised two inches in 50 minutes by means of wedges. Her bilgeways were then taken out and the apparent defects removed. All things being in order, a second attempt was made on the 22nd instant. And upon the removal of the supports, she moved freely for about 31 feet and then stopped. The public was no less disappointed after witnessing a second failed launch. Our anonymous almanac diarist was terse in his description of the second launch, saying, September 22nd, a second attempt was made to launch the ship Constitution with no better success than the first. Reverend Bentley was equally brief. The launching of the frigate was once again attempted in vain. People not so numerous as before. A letter from Rachel Bradford to her fiancé on September 26th records her skepticism after witnessing the first two launch attempts. I suppose you have seen in the papers an account of the disappointment we've all had in the launching of the frigate. Two attempts have been made two separate days to set her afloat, yet she's not moved 50 feet. The Jacobins have greatly exulted, and the chronicle thus begun of impudent speeches has dealt out many sad predictions and sarcastic remarks on the failure of the attempt to launch her. Whilst all the force of benevolence and aids of good-natured will on the part of the opposite party have appeared through the mercury to give a handsome coloring to the business, and to soothe the chagrin of the master shipbuilder who actually appeared to have lost flesh in eight and forty hours from mortification and vexation. Editor's Note Poor Claghorn. Yet it was not want of judgment that gave birth to his misfortune. The frigate now rests about 45 feet from her original station, very firmly settled in her ways. Whilst the Constitution of the United States has made the band of wit of all orders and degrees of people, on the stage and in the streets. But that's not to be wondered at, for a new Constitution is always the subject of much discussion. In his letter to the Secretary of War, George Claghorn explained what had gone wrong and why he didn't try harder to force the launch to a conclusion. On this unexpected event, as she was somewhat advanced on the new wharf which was built for her to pass over only and not to rest upon, I judged it advisable to suspend any further operations, although it might have been possible with the machinery previously prepared to have pressed her into the water. But if she had been constrained 20 or 30 feet farther and then have stopped, her situation would have been critical, on a foundation by no means solid. Accordingly, she was perfectly secured in her new situation. 
his inspection revealed that this section of the launching ways had also settled. To remedy the situation, he would order his crew to raise the height of the section where the ship was then stuck, while at the same time continuing to finish and fit out the vessel as it sat in the stocks. If only the launching ways for the new frigate had been as well designed as the frigate itself. Before designing the USS Constitution, Joshua Humphreys had been thinking about frigates for a long time. On January 6, 1793, he wrote to Robert Morris with some ideas about ship design. As our Navy must for a considerable time be inferior in numbers, we are to consider what size ships will be most formidable and be an overmatch for those of an enemy. Such frigates, as in blowing weather, would be an overmatch for double-deck ships, and in light winds to evade coming to action, and in blowing weather superior to ships of three decks, or in calm weather or light winds to outsail them. Ships built on these principles will render those of an enemy in a degree useless, or require a greater number before they dare attack our ships. Frigates, I suppose, will be the first object. None ought to be built less than 100 feet keel, to carry 28 32-pounders or 30 24-pounders on the gun deck, and 12-pounders on the quarter deck. These ships should have scantlings equal to 74s, and I believe may be built of red cedar and live oak for about 24 pounds per ton carpenter's tonnage, including carpenter's bill, smiths including anchors, joiners, boat builders, painters, plumbers, Carvers, coopers, blockmakers, mastmakers, riggers and rigging, sailmakers and sailcloth, suits, and chandler's bill. As such ships will cost a large sum of money, they should be built of the best materials that could possibly be produced. The beams of their decks should be of the best Carolina pine, and the lower futtocks and knees, if possible, live oak. Humphreys was deep in thought about frigates because the U.S. was about to launch a whole new navy. Here in 2020, we just passed the 245th anniversary of the founding of the Continental Navy last week. But after the revolution was over, the Continental Navy was dissolved in 1785. It wasn't just Captain Sam Nicholson who retired after the war, it was the whole dang fleet. Without an ongoing war, and with the government loosely organized under the Articles of Confederation, there was no drive to maintain a navy, so it was dissolved. Under the direction of Alexander Hamilton, its protean creator, the Coast Guard was started in 1790. But there would be no Navy for about a decade. The issue of naval power would become deeply politicized, with the Federalist Party pushing to create a naval force that could defend American shipping from the Muslim North African Corsairs, known then as Barbary Pirates, who regularly seized or sank American ships in the Mediterranean and were known to enslave their crews. As vice president, and later as president, John Adams was the strongest advocate for a navy, and in his twilight years he would count his success in getting a navy created among his life's greatest accomplishments. Finally, on March 27, 1794, Congress passed an act to provide a naval armament. The legislation authorized the construction of six frigates, and laid out every detail of how they should be armed and outfitted, the composition of the crew and marines that each would carry, pay for the sailors, and what the rations should be like on board. If you're wondering, the rations were mostly made up of bread, beans, cheese, potatoes, turnips, and salted pork. 
but you'll be happy to know that the language of the bill explicitly required that there shall also be allowed one half pint of distilled spirits per day, or in lieu thereof, one quart of beer per day to each ration. With six frigates now approved to form the nucleus of a new United States Navy, Joshua Humphreys was chosen to design the fleet. He was a trusted figure since he operated the largest and most productive shipyard in Philadelphia, the national capital, where the government could see his successful launches. He'd also built several successful ships for the earlier Continental Navy, so trust in him ran high. Humphreys was named Chief Naval Constructor, then the work of building each frigate would be farmed out to shipyards around the country. Rear Admiral Elliot Snow, himself a retired naval constructor at the Philadelphia Navy Yard, wrote a 1932 book about the Constitution that explains how construction was begun following the ideas that Humphreys had explained in that 1793 letter. When the new Navy was authorized, Humphreys' ideas prevailed. On April 12, 1794, he was directed by the Secretary of War to prepare the models for the frames of the frigates proposed by him. These models, or molds, were not ship models. The practice of constructing small models of projected vessels seems to have gone out of fashion a few years before. The Constitution was built according to the sheer half-breadth and body plans from which Humphreys prepared the molds. Her lines were, and still are, beautiful to look upon. The six original American frigates were designed to be much larger than frigates in European navies. Since America was poor in ships, but rich in timber and manpower, these giant frigates would help a limited number of vessels overpower competing frigates, while still outsailing ships of the line when they needed to escape. At the time, the French were considered the undisputed masters of ship design, but Humphrey's design ran counter to their accepted wisdom. The American frigates would be unusually deep, long in the keel, and narrow of beam. They mounted more and heavier guns than French ships of the same class, while also incorporating diagonal ribs that were meant to keep the keel from bowing or sagging under load or under sail. This gave her hull the unusual strength that would earn the Constitution the nickname Old Ironsides much later in her career. Names for each frigate were proposed in a letter to George Washington from Secretary of War Thomas Pickering, a Salem native whose trips had precipitated Leslie's retreat in 1774. Pickering needed confirmation of the names in order to authorize work on each ship's decorative figurehead, writing, As the carved work for the frigates should be relative to their names and will require a length of time to accomplish... The captains with Mr. Humphreys the constructor at this place have represented the necessity of an early designation of the names of the frigates. In a footnote to the letter, the six names that Washington approved were laid out. The United States was to be built in Humphreys' own yard. The Constellation was built in Baltimore. The President's keel was laid down in New York. The Congress would be built in Portsmouth. The Chesapeake was started in Norfolk, Virginia. And, of course, the Constitution would be built at Edmund Hart's shipyard in Boston. In his 1900 book about the frigate Constitution, Ira N. Hollis notes that the federal procurement and bidding system was far different in the 1790s than it was in 1900. Or today. The system under which the Constitution was built seems to have been radically different from the present common practice. The materials for the hull and equipment were purchased by the Treasury Department and supplied to the builders. 
All labor and unimportant materials were procured by naval agents who received a commission of two and one half percent on approved bills. The captain appointed to command the ship was ordered to superintend the construction and equipment, while the naval constructor had the immediate responsibility of the workmen employed, of the materials put into the ship, of the launching, and in general, of all that went towards producing a frigate mechanically perfect and complete in accordance with the plans supplied by Mr. Humphreys. The actual builder or master mechanic in whose yard the vessel was constructed had no responsibility besides doing good work. As I pointed out earlier, the captain who superintended construction was Sam Nicholson, the constructor was Colonel George Claghorn, and the builder whose yard was used was Edmund Hart. Admiral Snow's book points out that, far beyond these personalities, the construction of the frigate constitution was a thoroughly Boston affair, with our city's lifeblood running deep in the veins of the new ship. The Constitution's spars were shaped out in the yard which lay between Hart's shipyard and Comey's wharf. Paul Revere furnished the copper bolts and spikes, and a Mr. Thayer made the gun carriages. The anchors were forged at Hanover in Plymouth County. Her sails were made in the old granary building where Park Street Church now stands. The carvings and ornamental fittings were the works of Skillings Brothers of Boston. These included her figurehead. It was a figure of Hercules, holding a club overhead in the act of striking. As construction of the Constitution and her five sister frigates progressed, news came in late 1796 that peace was at hand with the Algerian Corsairs, or Barbary Pirates. Soon, the Treaty of Tripoli was signed, making peace official. Unfortunately for the Federalist advocates for a navy, the last clause of the earlier act to provide a naval armament had been thrown in to pacify Navy skeptics. It stated, Provided always, and be it further enacted, that if a peace shall take place between the United States and the Regency of Algiers, that no further proceeding be had under this act. With peace came a sudden stop to construction of the six frigates. Congress once again debated whether the nation even needed a navy. President Washington declared in his 1796 State of the Union address, It is in our own experience that the most sincere neutrality is not a sufficient guard against the depredations of nations at war. To secure respect to a neutral flag requires a naval force organized and ready to vindicate it from insult or aggression. These considerations invite the United States to look to the means and to set about the gradual creation of a navy. Will it not, then, be advisable to begin without delay to provide and lay up the materials for the building and equipping of ships of war, so that a future war of Europe may not find our commerce in the same unprotected state in which it was found by the present? Congress finally concurred, and allowed construction to continue on the three frigates that were closest to completion. The United States, the Constellation, and the Constitution would all be completed by the end of 1797. The three remaining frigates were mothballed and finally finished in 1799 and 1800 under President John Adams. The USS United States was the first of the three frigates to hit the water, being launched into the Delaware River on May 10, 1797. The Constellation followed on September 7th. And finally, it was the Constitution's turn on September 20th. And on the 22nd, 
and the ship remained stuck in its launching ways. The Constitution is still afloat some 223 years later, so it couldn't have been stuck in its ways forever. The anonymous diarist who witnessed the first two launches was also present for the third, writing, A third attempt to launch the ship Constitution. Succeeded completely. A fine launch. This time, the president and the governor decided to skip the festivities. Though thousands of Bostonians did dutifully line up on the shore and on boats to watch the third attempt. The coverage in the October 23rd edition of the Boston Commercial Gazette waxes effusive under the headline, The Launch, a Magnificent Spectacle. On Saturday last, October 21st, at 15 minutes past 12, the frigate Constitution was launched into the adjacent element on which she now rides, an elegant and superb specimen of American naval architecture, combining the unity of wisdom, strength, and beauty. The tide being amply full, she descended into the bosom of the ocean with an ease and dignity which, while it afforded the most exalted and heartfelt pleasure and satisfaction to the many thousand spectators, was the guarantee of the safety and the pledge that no occurrence should mar the joyous sensations that everyone experienced, and which burst forth in reiterated shouts which rent the air. On a signal being given from on board, her ordinance on shore announced to the neighboring county that the Constitution was secure. Too much praise cannot be given to Colonel Claghorn for the coolness and regularity displayed in the whole business of the launch, and the universal congratulations he received were evidence of the public estimate of his skill, intelligence, and circumspection. On the 25th, the Boston Sentinel gave its own summary of the launch. The spring tides the latter part of the last week gave the workmen in the naval yard an opportunity to complete the ways for launching the frigate Constitution. Colonel Claghorn, anxious to give as early information of the intended operation as possible, directed a gun to be fired at daylight on Saturday morning last, as a signal that at full sea he should move her into her destined element. Before noon, a very numerous and brilliant collection of citizens assembled at the spectacle, and at 15 minutes after 12, at the first stroke of the spur shores, she commenced a movement into the water with such steadiness, majesty, and exactness as to fill almost every breast with sensations of joy and delight, superior by far to the mortification they had before experienced. Such was the regular obliquity of the ways that she came to anchor within 200 yards of them, without the least strain or meeting or causing the most trifling accident. Now it was time for Captain Sam Nicholson to take command of the majestic frigate whose construction he had been supervising for three years. Unfortunately for the captain, two possibly apocryphal stories printed in an 1891 article in the United Services Journal make it seem as though he was cheated out of the two most important ceremonial duties of a captain at the launch of his new vessel. First came the incident with the ship's flag. It had been the intention of Captain Nicholson, a somewhat pompous old martinet of the 1776 school, to reserve for himself the honor of hoisting the national ensign over the new frigate, and when leaving the yard to obtain breakfast on the morning of the 21st, promulgated an order directing that no flag was to be raised or displayed on board until his return. But the captain was fated to lose the honor he coveted, while a humble artisan gained the distinction of being the first to throw the stars and stripes to the breeze over the powerful frigate. 
Could he have looked into the future and foreseen the grand career destined for the vessel, his disappointment would have only been equaled by his wrath. A workman named Samuel Bentley, a caulker, actuated by a spirit of reckless mischief and secretly bearing no goodwill to the straight-laced naval veteran, took advantage of his absence and, watching his opportunity, slipped on board, seized the halyards, to which the ensign was already attached, and the next instant rustling folds of the brand new bunting representing the flag of the free waved over the structure. When Captain Nicholson returned and beheld the flag fluttering in the damp, chill air, his anger burst forth with characteristic energy. But the mischief had been done, and the flag was not hauled down. After the flag incident came the matter of the christening itself. The tides were high and favorable, and at half-past twelve, Captain James Sever stood on the hill of the bowsprit, provided with a bottle of choice old Madeira that had been donated from the valuable and well-stocked cellar of Honorable Thomas Russell, a prominent Boston merchant. She glided easily and majestically into the water and was brought up with her starboard anchor within two hundred yards of the ways. As she then floated, she drew eighteen feet aft and fourteen feet forward. Now, Sever was a loyal and powerful Federalist, and he was stationed in nearby Portsmouth, waiting for construction of his own frigate, Congress, to be completed. So he might have found a way to push the old captain to the side on his own special day, breaking the ceremonial bottle of wine over the bow of Nicholson's ship. If either of those stories is true, the launch day of the USS Constitution must have been a disappointment for Captain Nicholson. However, it would have paled in comparison to the disappointment of Nicholson's career. The days of old Ironsides that redeemed the frigate's underwhelming launch would come much later. The Constitution was finally ready to put out to sea under Nicholson's command in late July 1798. Under orders from President John Adams, she was to patrol the eastern seaboard, engaging any armed French ships that might menace American shipping during the Quasi-War. Everything seemed to go wrong, with Nicholson imprisoning the crews of friendly nations, releasing the crews of enemy nations, and repeatedly damaging the frigate in storms. When the Constitution finally returned to Boston in May 1799, Captain Nicholson was relieved of command. The USS Constitution would serve with great distinction in the First Barbary War under Captain William Bainbridge. But it was during the War of 1812, a decade later, that Isaac Hull's command secured the Constitution's beloved place in American history. But that's a different story for a different episode. To learn more about the three launches of the Frigate Constitution, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 207. I'll have pictures and diagrams of the Constitution under construction, as well as links to the sources I quoted. I'll link to Emery's 1931 profile of George Claghorn, news stories about each launch attempt, Rachel Bradford's account of the first two launches, Reverend Bentley's diary entries about the same attempts, and the Almanac Diary of an Anonymous Bostonian. I'll also have links to Ira Hollis's 1900 book about the USS Constitution and Admiral Snow's 1932 history of the ship. And of course, I'll have links to information about our upcoming events and the Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys, this week's Boston Book Club pick. 
If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. 